Good morning, everyone. Welcome to the First Universalist Unitarian Church. My name is Carl Drake, and I am a member of this congregation. I want to extend a special welcome to any visitors joining us this morning. Since 1858, UU Wausau has served as a vital voice for liberal religion in central Wisconsin. We are an intentionally free society that welcomes all people just as you are, regardless of age, sexual orientation, ethnicity, or economic situation. Wherever you are on life's journey, you are welcome here. Between Sundays, we'd love to have you at one of our classes or events, so be sure to subscribe to the church's newsletter and follow us on Facebook or Instagram for updates. I have a few announcements here. Children's RE, Religious Education, starts today. After the time for all ages today, children up to sixth grade are invited to attend the first children's chapel of the year downstairs. Youth group movie night today also. This afternoon, there is a youth group movie night from 4 to 7.30 p.m. The youth will watch Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse. <clears throat> They'll look at the movie through the question, why do we need community? We have a speaker this morning who's going to tell us about the Granite House. Uh, Amy Fromm. Good morning. I am so delighted to be here in front of you all. Boy, what an honor. My name is Amy Fromm, and I am the manager of Granite House, and it is the former Community Corner Clubhouse, which was in Wausau, and it was recently closed down in October. Um, because of that, uh, we have 500 members who are misplaced. Uh, we have 150 active members who are just itching to get back together. They are um, struggling right now to get back together. To be a clubhouse, you, we are um, a, unique, a, a unique psychosocial rehab center and we only are a day service, and we have, um, we help with the members achieve employment, education if they want to go back to school, if they want to get their GED. We help them with basic needs, if they need clothes, if they need food, um, if they want to learn how to cook, if they want to learn how to clean, anything, anything to help them get through their day. We are open during the day only, and we are um, a very, very unique center where we are, um, we work side by side with our members. They don't do anything alone. We work with them, and they work with us. We are a very structured facility. We are working on getting accredited again when Community Corner Clubhouse did close, we lost our accreditation, so we had to start over. And so we are um, having to pay for, to get accreditation, we have to pay for um, getting our building set up again. We are gonna be on 8th Avenue, and it's gonna be off of Sherman, and it's, our landlord is working with us so that we could have affordable rent and that our utilities won't be any higher than a certain amount of $600 a month, which is still a lot of money. Uh, we do not have an auspice agency anymore or any you know, big company that's gonna be supporting us in case you know, we don't meet our monthly bills. So we have to fundraise. We, I am the only staff. So Community Corner Clubhouse had five or six people on their staff when I worked there. And 
I'm at right now. So we're gonna need some help, which means we need to fundraise and we need donations. Um, I am just uh, so overwhelmed with the community support that we've had. We need donations yet. We are hoping that uh, once we get open, we can achieve you know, getting community support. So when I think of community support, we also need to educate the community because when they think of a clubhouse, it's, you know, oh, you just go and play cards. No, that's not really what it's about. So, uh, although we do take some time out for that, uh, just like at the end of the day, just for an hour. So, but um, yeah, there's, everybody is so excited. So hopefully this week we get our lease signed, then we get in and we start painting, we start cleaning, not necessarily in that order, and then we start putting our carpet in and it's gonna be so exciting when we open up. So stay tuned, stay tuned. So we've been in the news a lot and so we continue to hopefully be in the news some more just for get the community educated a little bit more about what we're about. Thank you, thank you very much for giving me this opportunity. We're going to be passing the offertory plate later and the proceeds from that will go to Granite House. As we begin our worship together, let us take a moment to extend peace and blessing to one another. Please rise and greet your neighbors. Having way too much fun. <laughs> Dear friends, let us gather our hearts and minds for worship. Please join me in reciting the chalice lighting. It's a little different today. I ask you to turn to number 450 in the gray hymn book. I'll give you a minute to do so. And repeat together. Blessed is the match consumed in kindling flame. Blessed is the flame that burns the heart's secret places. Blessed is the heart with strength to stop its beating for honor's sake. Blessed is the match consumed in kindling flame. Please rise in body or spirit as you are able for our opening hymn, number 1008.
And we see your faces in each other's eyes. When our heart is in a holy place. When our heart is in a holy place. When our heart is in a holy place. We are blessed with love and amazing Update from your order of service. This morning's story will be told by Rowan. Rowan uses they or he. Our story for today is How to Apologize, written by Dave La Rochelle and illustrated by Mike Watanuka. Everybody makes mistakes, whether you're big or small. And when you've made a mistake that has hurt someone or something, the right thing to do is apologize. Apologizing can be hard, especially if the other person is mad. Or if it's someone you don't like. <laughs> but it's important to apologize anyway, even if that person owes you an apology too. Your apology can be simple, Tell the other person you're sorry for what you did. I'm sorry I borrowed your sock without permission. Don't make excuses. I'm usually much more careful, but I had an itch on my knee and a mosquito flew down my throat, and I was trying to avoid a dangerous looking crack in the sidewalk, and if your ladder wasn't taking up so much space, I wouldn't have bumped into it. I'm sorry I knocked you over. And be sincere. Mom told me I had to apologize for putting your doll in the fishbowl, or I can't go outside and play some baseball. So, I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry I accidentally squirted you with the garden hose when you were weeding the flower bed. <laughs> but you have to admit, you look hilarious. Look at this new glow-in-the-dark watch I got for my birthday. And I have a cupcake party on Sunday. And I'm sorry I sat on your violin. And guess who's going to be the star of the new dance recital next week? Me! I'm sorry I popped your balloon. I really am. You can also apologize with a note. Dear Sloth, I'm sorry I stepped on your toes. I should not have been running so fast. Snail. <laughs> Even if mistakes happen a long time ago. Do you remember back in 1987 when I called you Pokey Pants? Yes. It's never too late to apologize. Well, I'm sorry. Thank you. If possible, try to fix the mistake. But sometimes you can't. And in that case, you can still say you're sorry and then take steps to avoid making the same mistake. We're very, very sorry. It might be difficult, but apologizing will make, will make you feel better. More importantly, it will make the other person feel better. And that's why we apologize. The end.
Oh. <laughs> Battery on my mic died. Thank you, Rowan. Uh, I'm going to invite those in sixth grade and under. They may stay in service or they can head downstairs for our first children's chapel this morning. And I invite you all to bless those staying here and those who will be heading down to RE with our children's song. The words are printed in your order of service. I'd like to invite everyone to join me in a spirit of meditation or prayer. You're welcome to take just a moment to center your bodies, become present to this space, try to clear your mind of distractions. And so if you would, go ahead and place both feet flat on the ground. If you're comfortable closing your eyes now, is a good time to go ahead and close them. I want you to focus for a moment your attention on the top of your head. Slowly move your attention downward into your jaw. Let out any tension there. Move your attention downwards to your heart. And now to your lungs. Take a deep, full breath into your lungs. And breathe out slowly. Now another breath, deep and full, into your stomach. And out slowly. Let us pray. Holy mystery, even as we give thanks for the many blessings in our lives, we hear the cries of those who have nothing, of those who mourn, of those who grieve for all that they have lost or never had. And so we pray help for the helpless, comfort to the comfortless, and healing for the pained, the wounded, and the ill. And for ourselves, we pray for the courage and the commitment to know the difference between what is ours to do and what is not. This hour, we also ask for your blessing we ask for a blessing on our city officials and our lawyers and our alcohol shops and our grocery store aisles. Let a spirit of wholeness and goodness and moderation move in all those hidden secret places. Bless our marriages, even the rocky ones. Bless the people at our jobs, especially the annoying ones. Bless the people in this church especially the hurting and the hurtful ones. Bless our school teachers and principals, but especially the people who cook the food and clean the bathrooms and fix the lockers and toilets and copiers. Bless all those people in our town who are just waking up and wondering how they'll make it through another day. Bless the homeless and overlooked Bless the sick up the road at Aspirus. 
Bless the closeted gay kid and the trans kid who just told her parents. Bless everyone who thinks they're ugly and alone. Bless the wholehearted, but especially the brokenhearted. God of compassion, see us and help us to be seen. Help us to know that when we don't have enough love or patience or compassion that you do, that we are enough. And now let us call to mind all the joys and sorrows in our lives and let us meditate on them in silence together now. Amen. Please stay seated for hymn number 311 in the gray book. Let it be a dance.
a few words for our offering. Let there be an offering to sustain and strengthen this place, which is sacred to so many of us, a community of memory and of hope, for we are now the keepers of the dream. The mission and ministry of UU Wausau is made possible by the generous support of its friends and members. You can place a gift in the basket as it passes by. You can also stop by our website, uuwausau.org, to make a one-time or recurring gift with your credit or debit card. Thanks so much for your support. This morning's reading, I've selected a poem by Marge Piercy entitled, The Birthday of the World. And the poet writes, on the birthday of the world, I begin to contemplate what I have done and left undone. But this year, not so much rebuilding of my perennially damaged psyche, shoring up eroding friendships digging out stumps of old resentments that refuse to rot on their own. No, this year, I want to call myself to task for what I have done and not done for peace. How much have I dared in opposition? How much have I put on the line for freedom, for mine and others? As these freedoms are paired, sliced, and diced, where have I spoken out? Who have I tried to move? In this holy season, I stand self-convicted of sloth in a time when lies choke the mind and rhetoric bends reason to the slithering, choking pythons. Here I stand before the gates opening, the fire dazzling my eyes, and as I approach what judges me, I judge myself. Give me weapons of minute destruction and let my words turn into sparks. Here ends our reading.
So several years ago, this man came to my office for counseling. He said, I'm struggling with this hate I have for another man. And he told me this short story. He said, back in college, my roommate and I, we used to deal drugs. Now, nothing major, just the green stuff that's mostly legal nowadays in many of the countries, or many in the states in the country. But in any case, one night, the cops bust in when these friends were making a deal. And the man who came to me for counseling, he stood up as his roommate conveniently sat silent. So the man told me about this rage and embarrassment that he felt as he was let out in front of a bunch of his friends in handcuffs. And so within weeks, what happened is he was kicked out of college, and then he had to spend the next few months figuring out court dates and struggling to afford and pay for an attorney. And eventually what would end up happening is he would spend just about a month in jail, followed by a couple of years of probation. Throughout this entire time, the roommate he kept his distance. He didn't write, he didn't call, he never apologized. But life does what life does, and went on. And so this man who came to me, he said, but you know, I've got married, I've had a couple of wonderful kids, I've got a decent job, I get to take a vacation just about every year, I have season tickets to a particular football game that I like to watch on Sundays. It was a good life by almost anyone's standards. But inside, he said, I'm raging. Why didn't he at least say, I'm sorry? Because of him, he said to himself, I will never know how my life might have turned out. And so I met this man just a few days after he had gotten back from a trip to his old college town. And so on Facebook, like one does these days, he stumbled on a Facebook post of someone saying that his old college roommate was back in Chicago where they had gone to college, and he was living with his mom. And so after a bit of Googling, he found his roommate's mom address. As it turned out, it was the same address from all those years ago. It was the same house he had celebrating a couple of Thanksgivings in. It was the same house that he stole food from when the mom wasn't looking for his dorm room. It was the same house he did a few hundred loads of laundry in. So he said to his wife, he said, I'm going to go see a buddy down in Chicago for the weekend. He packed a bag of clothes, he put a pair of brass knuckles in his pocket, and he headed south. And so we got to his old roommate's house. The mom, mom, the, mo the man's mom, rather, she recognized him, and she said, why don't you come on in? She was delighted, as a lot of moms would be, that an old friend had come by to see her boy. And as she went to grab her son, the man said he put his hand into his jacket pocket. He put the brass knuckles around his fingers. So his plan was to make sure the old roommate remembered him first, right? He wanted to let him know how bad it was that he had taken the fall and this old friend had never showed even one ounce of sorrow. And then after that, what do you think he was going to do? He was going to let his fists do the talking. And so he was going over this plan in his mind, and then the mom came around the corner with her son. Her son, the old roommate, was strapped in a wheelchair. He had a big smile on his face, and he called his roommate by name. He said one night he had had a little bit too much to drink at a bar, and he fell right in front of a moving car. He spent months in the hospital, followed by rehab and surgeries and more rehab but that he'd spend the rest of his life like this. Now, the man had spent years hating this old roommate, plotting this revenge. And just when he thought he'd get the relief he longed for, he burst into tears and he said, I'm sorry. And then the old roommate said it too. I'm sorry. Now, one spent years turning his old roommate into a villain and the other spent years running from guilt. But now they were middle-aged men, and they saw each other as they were. Two people with addictions and passions and regrets. And so they talked for a few hours. And after he left, he said he drove down the block to a park. He buried the brass knuckles deep in a trash can, and he called his wife on the phone and explained to her everything. 
All she said was, come home. Now, there's no denying that conflict can take over our lives. Have any of you ever ruminated on something that's bothering you or a conflict you're having for days and days on end? Don't raise your hands. I know the answer. This is easy to do because conflict is energizing. Doesn't it feel good to be mad at someone sometimes? Like it's energizing, get a little zip in your step. Sometimes whenever I'm mad at someone, I run really well. Like I should always be mad whenever I run a 5K. I would win every single time. And I love church people, just so you know, but I'm going to critique you here for a moment if you don't mind, like you guys are going to stop me. Anyways, if you want to see church people burst into action, here's a recipe. Just stir up a little bit of controversy, and suddenly people will start dropping from the rafters like Navy SEALs, trying to get on the action. The reason why people do this is because conflict gives us a sense of purpose. War is a force that gives us meaning but it also has the power to bring us to ruin. On this topic, the Buddha said, and I quote, holding hatred in the heart is like drinking poison and hoping others will die. The thing about hatred and resentment's poison is that it's delicious. It's like, what are those drinks you all drink here in Wisconsin, those gross saccharine things? Anyways, they taste like whatever that, an old-fashioned. It tastes like an old-fashioned, that's what it tastes like. But what do we know about old fashions? They're also addictive. And so this past Friday evening, Jews from around the world, they kicked off the 10 days of repentance with the holiday of Rosh Hashanah. And it culminates in just a few days from now with the Jewish Day of Atonement. And so Rosh Hashanah, it begins with the sounding of a shofar, which is this ancient instrument carved from a ram's horn. And the sounding of the horn signals to the faithful that court is in session. What it means when the court is in session is that the book of life now sits open. And God judges who will live and who will die. And so over the ten days, what Jews do is they confess their sins and they throw themselves at the mercy of the court. It's a ritual when people ask forgiveness for what? For lots of things for their self-righteousness, for their neglect, for their dishonesty. They ask so that their names might be written in the book of life, but that's not all. Rosh Hashanah is also an ancient drama about the transformative power of the human spirit. It's a long, long time ago, humankind practiced religions that viewed the world as a battle between the indifferent forces of good and the indifferent forces of evil. But over time, as Judaism and its radical belief in one God, which is called monotheism, as that idea spread, the location of the battle between the forces of good and evil, they evolved as well. And so still today, I bet many of you here believe that there is something like a war between darkness and light, between goodness and evil. But seldom do you find someone who says that that war happens out there. Most of us talk about that war happening where? Right here in our heart, in our head, in our soul. Jews believe that we are partners in the work of creation. Think about that for a minute. Partners in the work of creation. And despite history book after history book reminding us that we seldom seem to get it right, that we're often too selfish and spiteful and murderous, Jewish scriptures assure that God never gives up on our ability to change. As long as you're alive, you can change, you can heal, you can restore. Now, some atheists, they like to say that this is nothing more than a comforting fiction. And I understand this argument, I respect it, I've made this argument myself. But I think it's short-sighted, and here's why. The word religion, actually, its definition gets at what forgiveness is all about. And so in the truest sense, the word religion means to bind and to care. At the core of Judaism resides a religious challenge that says we can heal at least some of the wounds in our deeply broken world, at least some of the wounds in our deeply broken hearts. 
And as the psychiatrist and Holocaust survivor Viktor Frankl put it, the real question is not what we want from life, but what does life want from us? Now, I think that this is a good point to state the obvious. Sometimes it does need to be stated. Forgiveness is hard. I'm not pretending that forgiveness is easy. In full disclosure, on a personal note, I have had a more than 15-year grudge against one of my college professors for giving me a C in the class. I'm still mad at her. But there's this tendency to speak about forgiveness like it's this glorified Christmas present, right? It's this transaction, this gift we give someone that happened back then, that old forgive and forget mantra you might have heard. But that gives the impression that forgiveness is easy. It's not. Grudges are hard to let go of. Even a C in a class I probably deserved a D in. It's hard. It's hard because forgiveness is part of the larger process of peacemaking in our world. Each change of the heart changes the world. That's how forgiveness works. When we forgive someone, we're not actually trying to change them. We're trying to change ourselves. It is an act of will or habit forgiveness that sometimes has the power to defy our ethical thinking. There are some moments of forgiveness that have the power to shock us to the core of our moral foundations. Two quick examples. Just go back in time with me to the year 2015 and imagine on the television when you watched it for the first time, those victims, the families of the victims at the 2015 Charleston Church shooting. One after another, they forgave someone. Another moment whenever it defied our conceptions was when Martin Luther King Sr., he made the shocking admission in front of a packed house at Harvard's Memorial Church. And what did Daddy King say? He said, I have no bitterness in my heart and I have forgiven my son's assassin. There is a radical part of forgiveness that defies our senses. Forgiveness pushes us. It challenges morality. Now today, scientists enjoy telling us about the positive effects of forgiveness and I'm going to focus on that for a moment because you're Unitarians. You like science. I did my research. But after that, I'm going to refocus us on the religious aspects of it, the habit of it, the power it has to help us accept what's been while living. But first, here's the science. Get this. Research shows that the simple steps of saying these three little words, I forgive you, can reduce stress. How many of you would like to have less stress in your life? Say, I forgive you. Not only does it decrease stress, it actually lowers humankind's risk of heart disease and mental illness. I don't want to have those things, so be more forgiving. Research also shows that saying, I forgive you, prevents cognitive decline later in life. That sounds pretty good. It also helps us live longer. It increases our earning potential, research shows. And best of all, being a forgiving person actually makes you happier. Being forgiving is right up there with eating healthy and regular exercise. I read one study that showed subjects who held grudges actually had higher levels of cortisol. Do you all know what cortisol is? It's sort of that stress hormone that's in our body. Now, I don't know. If you don't know, so people with high, or rather chronically high cortisol levels, AKA, I'm gonna label people with chronically high cortisol levels, we're gonna call those people angry people. We're gonna call those people grudge-holding people just for the sake of this sermon. Don't judge anyone like that. So these people with chronically high cortisol levels, they actually experience, whenever you're grumpy, whenever you hold a grudge for a long time, get this, this is what's happened inside your brain. Your brain actually gets smaller. That's a scientific fact. It also decreases your sex drive. It also results in digestive problems. 
My wife wrote a note right here that said, do not tell the joke that you wrote after this. It's a joke, I'm just gonna skip it, but it's a joke if I told it. It would be a joke about sex and having bad gas and, and, and having a small brain. But my wife said, please don't tell this joke. I'm gonna tell it. Okay, anyways, it says, in, in other words, angry, unforgiving people are dumb, they're bad in bed, and they have a lot of gas. It's a fact. It's the science. You can't argue with the science. I used to be this church's minister. Anyways, I'm going to keep preaching. So psychologists who study forgiveness, they've developed this popular method for forgiveness called REACH, R-E-A-C-H, and it stands for recall, empathize, altruistic gift, commit, and hold. Leave it to an academic to make forgiveness sound terribly boring. But here's what it means. In sum, what it wants you to do is recall the wrongdoing, try to understand the other person's point of view, address your own shortcomings, commit to the forgiveness, and hold on to it. Harvard Medical School published a very popular article on this a couple of years ago, if you want to Google it and see for yourself. The science of forgiveness is clear. Here's where I would end the sermon if I didn't think the religious aspects are equally important. As beneficial as forgiveness is, I want to suggest that real forgiveness will and must challenge the assumptions and test the boundaries of our moral instincts. If there is one religious heritage in this universalist church, it is its commitment to a love that keeps no score of wrongs. And this is a radical concept. It sets aside any insistence on settling the question of who started it in favor of another question. How can we try and stop this? And what starts this process is an apology that takes responsibility that doesn't make excuses. Now you might think that this doesn't need to be said, but in the 21st century, making excuses is only as popular as like Taylor Swift. I don't know anything else that's as popular. Politicians don't apologize. People in this church don't apologize. Celebrities pay lots of money to have PR firms get with an attorney to write an apology for them that doesn't apologize for everything. And the court of public opinion does what? It cancels people all the time without anything even closely resembling a fair trial. I sometimes wonder if we've gotten like this because we live, as David Brooks wrote in The Atlantic, in a mean, remorseless era with people who were never shown how to say sorry. People who were never shown, here's how you might try being a little nicer. Now, I don't know about you, but my parents taught me how to apologize. So did my teachers. I vividly, I can vividly remember my mom saying things like, Brian, I am so thankful you apologized. That is something strong people do. I know you want to change. Now, don't get me wrong. Whenever I was younger and my mom said this stuff, I was annoyed, really annoyed in those moments. But today, I can see that she was trying to show me the possibility of living another way. Now, let me emphasize something here before I move on. People who are victims of unprovoked assaults never need to apologize. They never need to forgive either. But often, the stories of our lives are not that clear. This is why a true apology is willing to see whether there are patterns that allow stuff to devolve into conflict. Whenever I counsel people about forgiveness, at some point I tell them forgiveness can never be rushed. You can never impose it on somebody. You can never require it of somebody. And I also tell them what I said earlier, that forgiving people is not the same as forgetting. It's a willingness to see much of the conflict that we engage in as a waste, a waste of energy, of life, sometimes of our time and talent and resources, and most of all, it wastes our hope. The miracle of forgiveness is that it has the power to make friends enemies, to turn weakness into strength, and to find hope in brokenness. But forgiveness isn't just about others. It's about us. It's about befriending our own living. 
That's about forgiving our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. It's about recognizing that if you have regret, that means you're still alive. You get to try again. You get to make new habits. The Jewish Day of Atonement remind the faithful that God forgives the failures we acknowledge. And that even when we lose faith, God never loses faith in us. The Days of Atonement also remind that at some point, every one of us will be cast into the depths. We're going to get sick. We're going to lose someone. We're going to hold one too many grudges. We'll be betrayed or we'll do the betraying. We'll see that the dream job we spent a decade getting has turned us into a nightmare not only to ourselves, but to the people we live with. What the people who fall to those depths tell us, those people who manage to crawl out, they tell us that in order to survive, they had to let go of the things that won't save us. They had to reach out for the things that will. Unless we reach out to and for others, seeking meaning not only in our suffering, but in our shared experiences, our lifelines will not hold. Forgiveness not only makes life better, it makes it worth living, but most of all, it shows us that life isn't about what we want, but what life wants from us. Now let us rise and sing our closing hymn, number six in the gray book, Just As Long As I Have Breath. If you will receive the benediction, I invite you to reach out, take the hand of someone nearby. If you're here alone, reach out with your heart. May the truth that sets us free, the hope that never dies, and the love that casts out fear lead us forward together until the day spring breaks and all shadows flee away. Please have a seat, relax, and enjoy the postlude. <laughs>